what we're trying to do on a smaller level to be this location independent, amazing online business is you just need to get known for one thing. And if that's the right thing, you might ride that for the rest of your career. Or you might change it in two years and that's okay too. But the point is to get known for something so that when you run across people, they know exactly what you do. They know exactly if you're the right person and if they should sign up. And uh, then it's just a matter of when. Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshavsky, and welcome to episode 133 of That Remote Life Podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I am so excited to be joined by Matt Johnson, the author of the book Microfamous and the host of the Microfamous Podcast. Matt is a longtime entrepreneur, and through his book and strategies, he helps people become recognized industry experts and thought leaders using podcasting in order to grow a profitable lifestyle business. You will learn three important things from this interview. Number one, how Matt is able to run his agency while working only four hours a week. Number two, how to use a podcast to get clients for your location-independent service business, and finally, who the micro-famous process is for and how to use it to grow your brand and business. But before we jump into the interview, make sure that you subscribe to my weekly newsletter, Nomad Insider. Every Monday morning, I send out a brief but informative email with all the top news from the digital nomad world so you never get left out. From upcoming conferences and new digital nomad visas to technology breakthroughs and the newest developments in remote work, this is the easiest way to become a digital nomad insider. It's completely free and you can sign up at thatremotelife.com forward slash nomad insider. Finally, I would love to hear what you think about this podcast. I have made it very easy to leave a review. All you have to do is just head over to ratethispodcast.com forward slash TRL and write your review. That's it. It's that easy, you guys. If you're enjoying this podcast, leaving a review is one of the best ways to support us. Reviews are a key statistic that podcasting apps look at in order to determine how to rank a podcast. So your review will directly help us climb the rank boards and attract new listeners. So thank you in advance for leaving a review if you choose to do so. All right, you guys, without further ado, let's dive into this awesome conversation with Matt Johnson. All right, Matt, welcome to the show, man. I am so stoked to have you here. It's an honor. I really appreciate it. Now we have a good friend, Brian, that kind of hooked us up and sounds like we run in the same circles and similar audiences. So I'm excited to have a good chat. Yeah, I feel a little bit jealous because one of the things about like, you know, working remotely and traveling is like I don't have to ha- I don't get to have a cool backdrop like you do for the people watching on on video right now. So that's always something that I'm always like when people show up with like a nice backdrop, I'm always like, "Oh, I'm so jealous of that." So uh, I know, but I've I, seen I, your YouTube video about your condo and I know what the view is on the other <laughs> side that I know the view that you're looking at and I'm jealous of that cuz I am I'm 8 blocks from the beach. I can't see the beach from my place. You're looking out your window and you can see your beach. So I'm very jealous. 
Yeah, yeah. This is why we just, we literally, so this desk used to face the wall and I walked back in yesterday and my wife had turned it perpendicularly. So it's actually facing the water. Um, mm -hmm. And the whole idea of that was like, actually the lighting is a lot better. But then I was like working here. I was like, all right, I, this is, I think we're going to keep the desk like this, even though it kind of juts out into uh, the room. But listen, Matt, uh, I'd love to start uh, off this interview with a quote that uh, you have on your website that really, really uh, interested me. And that was that podcasting made you an industry insider, influencer, and speaker in 18 months. So a lot of people who are listening to this podcast, they probably want to have some sort of, you know, um, not necessarily fame, but I always talk about kind of like the Kevin Kelly of like Kevin Kelly versus Brad Pitt, right? Like people who want to be known in their industry and want to have that sort of respect, but not necessarily want to be famous and like a, I can't go out and get a beer at my local bar kind of thing. So tell me that story. How are you able to use a podcast to get to this, uh, you know, place of being considered an industry uh, expert and a speaker in just 18 months? Because that's not a long time at all. No, and it, it shocked me just how quickly it happened. Um, and just to give people some some insight into why it happened that quickly, so I, that was in the real estate space. The show is called Real Estate Uncensored. I think we're coming up on 700 episodes and something like 2 million downloads. And so it did really well, especially in that space. It was It's, it's one of the big handful of shows in that space. And uh, I the, the background there is I had run a real estate team for a short time back in like 07. Uh, there was a lot that I didn't like about the business. So I ended up getting out of the business and went into like chasing the dream as a musician. And I came across like Kevin Kelly's, you know, the big article that, that made that was like an atom bomb in the musician community. Like, oh my God, a thousand true fans like that. And then all the, that became like the model for what people wanted to do. And so I started building this marketing skill set and then at some point, like five years into the dream, you know, chasing the dream as a musician, I just realized like, hey, if I've got to spend 80% of my time marketing anyway, just to get, just to scrape by as a musician, even with this thousand true fans model, I might as well just go take those marketing skills into the business world where they're extremely valuable and do music as a passion project on the side. And so I, I ended up hooking up with an agency. I did some business development for them and we started doing these Google Hangouts with like industry influencers. And one of them just called me up one day and was like, dude, we should start a podcast together. We have a great time. I'm like, I was going to call you up next week and pitch you the same thing anyway. So let's do it. So, uh, and that became real estate uncensored. So it was kind of like, I, I fell into this world of podcasting, but I had things like that in my background, like the Kevin Kelly article. And so, uh, I just realized that, um, like I had just enough of the background in the industry that when I would hop on with these influencers in, in the space, I was able to ask really good questions. And you'd be shocked at, at the level of respect that you get from really smart people when you just ask them smart questions. And you know exactly what I'm talking about because you probably felt it. That that's part of what like the magic of podcasting because people would hop on, they would have no idea who I was and we would just have a good conversation for 45 minutes and they would go come out of that going, man, like Matt knows his stuff. And the audience, when they would hear that, they hear that level of respect from the, from the guest to, to me asking them questions. And that level of respect kind of rubbed off on me. So I started getting me and my co-host booked on other shows and just kind of networking in the podcasting space. And all of a sudden, the next thing you know, we're getting one of the podcast hosts that we got booked on also ran an event, you know, five, 600 people in the industry. Next thing you know, we're doing a packed out breakout room uh, session at his event 18 months in. So it happened really quick. 
but I'm sure you've heard it from other people. 18 months is a, a lot of times, you know, for a lot of influencers, that's when the magic seems to happen. I mean, Gary Vee said the same thing about his YouTube channel. He's like, I, I felt like I was shouting into the void for about 18 months before the YouTube channel started to take off. So, so 18 months is kind of a good, I, I've, I've heard that pop up in other people's story. So in retrospect, I guess it wasn't that surprising, but yeah, I did have some, I did have a little bit of an advantage when I came in because I knew the space. I knew some of the people I'd read the books. I knew how to ask smart deep questions and that gets respect really quickly. And so that, that made my job a lot easier. And then all of a sudden that started turning into uh, podcast invitations, speaking invitations. And the next thing, you know, I, I, I had kind of achieved this level of micro fame and um, yeah, then the question was, well, what the hell do I do with it? <laughs> so that's, an, that's another story, but that, that's the, the background of like how podcasting worked for me. Yeah, I think the asking good questions is so important in podcasting because nowadays, even though I know the statistics in terms of like online content, like I know there's like way less podcasts than there are blogs, but still there's a lot of podcasts out there. There's a lot of interviews out there. And for me, like I, I said this recently at a conference, like the thing that for me makes a podcast interview a success or not is whether the guest at one point said, hmm, that's a good question. The moment I hear that, I'm like, it doesn't matter how many people download this. For me, I brought something new to the conversation, right? Maybe they've been on 100 interviews, but if they're asked the same 100 questions every single time, then my 101 interview is really not that beneficial. But if I can get new questions that bring new answers, like to me, that's really, really important. I'm curious, you know, like you said, 18 months seems to be, you know, kind of like a moment when things pop. And I've also heard you think, I've heard you say before, uh, the, the most important work to make a podcast successful happens before the podcast is launched. But what if you're at that 18 month marker later and you haven't quite felt that moment yet? What do you advise somebody who's at that place do like is there something like is there hope around the corner should you just quit and restart like what would be kind of like your feedback to that okay this is really tough so i'm going to give you an opinion that I, i'm still hammering out number one it's always okay to rebrand uh i was uh i interviewed mike kim i don't know if you know mike he's um he behind the scenes he worked with michael hyatt Todd Herman, he helped co-write Story Brand with Donald Miller, like really mm -hmm. sharp guy. His first podcast was called something. I don't know what it was. And then he changed it to Brand You. He's like, bam, took off. Like it took six, it took me six months to like rebrand my own podcast. And he's like, I'm supposed to be the expert at this. So it, like it happens to the best of us. No matter, like you can be a branding expert and still come out and realize, crap, I, I branded my own podcast incorrectly. Uh, I did it. I did the same thing. So the, the Microfamous podcast I have today is not the original title of it because Microfamous came about during the process of writing the book. In fact, it came about towards the tail end of writing the book. And I, then I had to rebrand and almost rewrite the book to reflect that terminology for what the result that I wanted to get people. So it's okay. It's okay to rebrand. Now, in terms of like, do you, you know, how do you know if you found the right niche or a small enough niche, here's something to think about that I've been thinking about myself. Could you reach out to somebody in your, in your market, somebody that should be listening to your show. And if you just sent them an authentic email, one-to-one, -one, four or five sentences saying, Hey, I'm doing this thing. I'm interviewing these types of people. I thought you might enjoy it. Here's a link, check it out. And I think you might, I think you might like it. 
if you can't send that email because it would come across as salesy and there's too much selection out there of the same exact type of podcast, then maybe your market's too big. Mm. And I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make with podcasting is they're trying to go for the maximum number of downloads thinking that that's what they need. And what they end up doing is starting a podcast that's too similar. It's indistinguishable from everything else out there. And that, to me, that's a good way to tell is if you couldn't, if, if an email like that wouldn't get somebody's attention because they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It sounds like just like every, you know, I, I've got five other podcasts in my, in my Apple podcast account that sound just like what you just said. Then think about how you can niche down even further, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that that's, I, I think that's really interesting because that's something that gets talked about a lot, right? Like, hey, make sure that you're talking to a market of the right size. It's not too big so that you're not just like one voice out of like a hundred, like kind of like find, I recently read this quote that I think said this really eloquently, which was something like, uh, don't be the best, be the only. And I'm not exactly yeah. sure who said that, but I was like, oh, I kind of like that. Uh, mm -hmm. And I like that approach to testing that because we've all heard that so many times, but how do you actually know if that's true? And I think that's an interesting approach to also, I believe it may have been Mark, Matt Garland who said this, but it might be wrong where you kind of start as like an hourglass, right? Where you, when you're creating content, you want to start out really wide to taste a lot of different things and see what works for you, what works for like the people, like what are you good at talking about? And then once you find it, really niche it down. So you kind of get like that hourglass shape. And once you get there and you win that audience, you can then open back up if you want to. But my question here is if you're rebranding a podcast, oh, so sorry, go ahead. Oh, I just said 100%. Totally, totally agree with that. Um, now let's let's talk about the rebranding. Okay. Yeah. So I'm just kind of curious in terms of like the rebranding. Would you, if you're doing a podcast, is this something like when you did it, is this something where you said, all right, we're ending podcast one and now we're going to start off a brand new podcast, like basically from scratch? Or is it something where you kind of do like a facelift to the original podcast to keep the same number of episodes and the same number of reviews? Because that's obviously a sign of, you know, having been around for a while and a sign of like trustworthiness? Uh, so I've done both. We've done both for clients. And the advantage of rebranding an existing feed is you get the subscribers that are already there that'll get the next episodes automatically. Now, that's only valuable if the people that are already subscribed are the right people for you, you're just rebranded because you're trying to get something that's more compelling and interesting for them. So if that's the goal and that's the reason for the rebrand, then just rebrand the existing feed. If you realize, crap, I built a podcast that's attracting the wrong people. And so you have subscribers, but they're not the people that you want anyway, start fresh, just start over. Um, you, you can get, you know, I mean, if you reach out to people that you know, people that are in your network, influential people, if you just ask for your guests to leave reviews after they're done recording and, you know, just simple things like that, you get 20, 30 reviews on your podcast. You know, not, it's not that hard to get that. And, and honestly, once you, you're eight episodes in that fills up, you know, the feed, uh, when anybody kind of looks at your podcast, that's enough to where it's reputable. Um, especially in the business world, uh, where we're talking about small, kind of micro audiences anyway. Yeah, 25, 30 reviews and 10 episodes deep. And yeah, it's it's good enough that most people are going to say yes to you to be on the show. And it looks credible enough to take a chance on listening to. So starting from, you know, starting from scratch, as long as you're not abandoning your right people on some other show is typically would be the way to go. Uh, and it doesn't take that long to catch up and build something that looks super credible. It just takes a couple of months. 
I know this might be taking a step back a little bit, but why start a podcast in the first place, right? Like you talked about, you know, when you wanted to get into the industry that you, you know, into real estate, you decided to start a podcast. But why do that? Why did you choose to do that over starting a YouTube channel or a blog or whatever it may be, which kind of has this benefit of searchability that podcasting still in many ways does not? Like what should mm -hmm. people consider about podcasting and what made you choose podcasting over the other mediums? Well, that's a tough question to answer because I didn't choose. Here, here's how it went down for me. We were broadcasting our show on Google Hangouts, which streamed to our YouTube channel. So for the first year, we had more of an audience on YouTube. It took a full a year and a half or maybe even longer for it to flip and for us to have the majority of our audience listening to the audio version. So I got all the benefit of YouTube and YouTube put 4,000 opt-ins into our email list over the course of about a year and a half to two years for free because our episodes were streaming live to YouTube. And so we got the searchability. We got the discoverability. Our videos were coming up and recommended, uh, you know, videos for other, other people in our space. So we got, we got all the benefits of both. Now that no longer exists. So it's a different game today. You can't take your full 45 minute podcast interview, video interview on YouTube and expect it to get the traction it did five years ago. Um, even Rogan himself, I mean, they get, I think they get more traction on YouTube with their clips than they do with the mm -hmm. full episodes. Right. Um, and obviously Joe Rogan's such a huge name that it's, it's even hard to quantify. Like just because he does something doesn't mean it's good. He's got enough audience there where just about anything he does looks good because he's got that many followers. So it's hard to really, uh, take examples from him. Yeah, so in like nowadays, a scientific sense, he's like a data point that you almost need to like ignore when looking at like, you know, yes. what analytics say. Yeah. Yes. It's like if you're a musician and you look at the Dave Matthews band and go, great, I need unbelievable musicians and 15 minute long songs. Like, no, that's not, <laughs> not going to work for most people. They are the outlier that proves the rules. Um, you probably need a three minute song and, and everything can be built on a computer. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's hard to look at like super outlying examples like Rogan and, and take some lessons away. So anyway, uh, so YouTube versus podcasting. So right now, if you are comfortable on camera, I think what you should do is have a podcast where you have conversations with people that are going to produce these really interesting insights and ideas, then go turn around and do a piggyback video where you spend five to 10 minutes talking about and expanding on whatever interesting idea came out of that conversation. And then you go, great. If you like that, go check out the rest of the conversation on the audio podcast. And it's the show and the show has different forms of content right? Depending on whether it's long form or short form, keep the short form stuff on YouTube where the average watch time is going to be super low. Anyway, take the long form content, keep it on the audio side. That way it doesn't ruin your YouTube analytics basically, right? So for your YouTube channel, for example, you might want to think about pulling back the full video uh, interviews and making them either unlisted or private and only available on your website, take clips out, put them on YouTube or do those piggyback videos like we talked about. Cause essentially if you look at the back end of a YouTube channel and you go, okay, I'm publishing 50 minute interview videos and you look at your watch time and the average is 12 minutes. YouTube is looking at that going, that's not a very popular video. People didn't watch 80 or 90% of it. Like they're not, they're just not accounting for mm. long form podcast videos. Now maybe that'll change, but at least for now, YouTube dings you in the algorithm. And so it makes it harder for you to build a channel. Uh, if YouTube is dinging you going, yeah, that video wasn't very compelling. You know, people bailed, uh, 10% of the way in. So these days, um, it's a little bit different than when I started and my advice would be different, but for all, for all of our clients, like our podcast agency clients, 
about half of them do video and we publish them in various forms, whether it's clips mostly, and then we typically keep the full videos unlisted available on their website. People can send out individual links and they can get to the video, but we don't encourage people to go to their YouTube channel and play a full video knowing they're going to bail in 10 minutes. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's almost like, you know, going back to the whole, um, you know, like Joe Rogan argument where it's like he can break the rules because he doesn't have to necessarily play by them because of how big he is. And maybe you can do the same thing once you get a certain size, right? But in order for you to grow to that size, you need to play by the rules to eventually later down the road kind of break the rules, right? Um, In kind of speaking in meta terms, you've mentioned your agency, the fact that you used to have, I believe that your agency now is different than the agency before, as far as I understand, because that was in the real estate space. But I heard you say on an interview that there was a point at which you were working just about three or four hours a week on the agency. And I'm curious to learn a little bit more about that. I know that's a bit of an odd segue, but I think this is a very important topic because a lot of people who are location independent, who are digital nomads, try to stay away from services because it's like, I don't want to spend all that time into it, but I know that there's a way to do it correctly where you don't have to spend that much time on it. So can you tell me a little bit about how you were able to do that? And is that still your time commitment in the agency or have you dialed that up more? I haven't dialed it up. And by the way, if somebody gives you a hard time about segways, just tell them you gave them up along with gluten. I gave up <laughs> yeah. uh, I love that line. Uh, that's, that's from an old sitcom called Happy Endings. Okay. So that's still the norm. So I manage the agency in about four hours a week. That includes strategy calls with clients throughout the week sprinkled in. But for the most part, the operations of the agency is run with one group Zoom call on Tuesday mornings. Uh, I have my head of content who's based in South Africa, and she runs the meeting and runs the questions and asks the key questions, and everybody reports their metrics in, yada, yada, right? I have talked to that, that gal nearly every week for four years. Like I, even when she was just my writer, we talked religiously every single week we jump on Skype or zoom or whatever. And to me, that's the key to making this stuff work. Like the, the remote stuff, the location independent stuff is you have to be absolutely dogmatically religious about meetings, not excessively, but the meetings have to be well run. They have to be based on numbers that people report that are crystal clear. So they know exactly what you expect of them. And you cannot let that meeting go and kind of gradually tail off and go, oh, we'll be fine. We, you will not be fine. <laughs> it will not, it will, it will gradually descend into uh, la- lack of service, right? So that's that's been the key for me. And so yes, that that's still the time commitment because I'm so dogmatic about numbers and I've really narrowed it down to the key metrics that matter the most. So I, when, when those numbers aren't right, I know something's up and we can jump in really quickly and figure it out. Um, and we're religious about that and dedicating that time and it being fun in the first part, right? Catching up on each other's lives, making sure I know what's going on. You know, I know, I know what's what the deal is with their kids. I know how they feel physically. I know what's going on in their lives and then talking numbers and projects and that, that hang, like everything hangs on that weekly meeting because of that. Yes, I, I'm able to limit my time. I don't book any calls in the afternoon for the most part. Um, everything is done Tuesday to Friday between eight and noon. And then Mondays are my day where I basically don't book anything so that I can create content. That's when I write and record my own podcast episodes for Microfamous and stuff like that. So 
the only time that I spend outside of those four hours managing the operations is doing stuff that either is like writing the book that came out last year or hosting my own podcast to grow the network, you know, just catching up on the industry, reading marketing books, like stuff that just kind of is long-term growth stuff. Um, so I still work, you know, 20, 25 hours a week. I work a little bit almost every day, but because I want to, not because I have to, to keep the business afloat. The business would stay afloat if I just worked an hour a week on that one meeting, basically. So I love that, first of all, um, because I totally agree with kind of having a call from time to time and, you know, kind of like making it very, like you said, kind of like religious, like, hey, this is what we do and here's what we talk about and not letting it morph over time. But how do you make sure that it doesn't, you don't fall into this trap of just Zoom calls for everything? Because that happens a lot and I've seen it happen in agencies before where they almost like a zoom call is almost like the bandaid on any sort of problem that shows up. And this is where a lot of time and effort gets eaten up in these service businesses. So how do you make sure that you don't just sort of slap a zoom call for every single thing? Well, give, give me an example. So how do you use them? Zoom call as a bandaid. So for example, if there's something going on and instead of coming up with some sort of solution asynchronously, you immediately resort to like, well, let's jump on a Zoom call and figure it out together. Like what oh, sort of, God. I guess I can say, what sort of systems do you have in place in the company that are supporting the ability to only have, you know, a few calls a week that then run everything else? Okay. So I would say one big overarching thing and then two small technical things. So the big overarching thing is just systems. And I run a business and I chose to run a business very intentionally that's not project-based. It's rhythm, week in, week out, we do the same thing and we sell one package to one type of person. So we know exactly who our client personality type is. We know who we're dealing with. We know that they don't want us to communicate all the time. They want, they want us to just take care of things. They don't want a lot of communication. They want very strategic, very focused, minimal communication. And then the rest of it's up to us. And because we're not doing a thousand different things, we don't have a lot of that stuff come up where there's a lot of questions. But when we do, I'll talk about the two technical things. The first one is Trello. And there's there's certain roles within our agency where the expectation is if you are tagged on Trello, you're paying attention. And that's where a lot of the instructions are and changes and things like that. So there's communication happening that way that's a asynchronous or not. Then for more synchronous communication and to speed up communication without having to do something like jump on a call, we use Voxer, which is the walkie talkie app where you can literally just pick up and voice message somebody. So I'll do that to my staff. Like I do not live in Trello. Like I am not the one you tag to get stuff done. Like I am way out of that. So, but I am on Voxer. So if there's something that needs to be said, or if there's a question that needs to be answered with it might have been like, Hey, let's jump on a 15 minute zoom. I can take care of that in two minutes through Voxer. So in the few times when that does uh, come up, we've got a system for that. And then the goal is because we're so systems based and because we're doing things that are repeatable, we're constantly improving our systems over time. And so there's always two layers to solving that problem. The first layer is what do we do about this specific problem? Let's get that out of the way. Let's get it fixed. Bam, done. Second layer is how do we prevent this from ever, ever, ever happening again? Like, what do we do to tweak the system so this is never an issue again? Like, that's always our approach. And I think it's really tempting as a freelancer or an agency owner, I always have to push back even against my own team of just solving the problem at the first layer 
like solving this problem that's here right in front of us and then forgetting to solve it for the next time. And so that's, that's my job as a leader to go, great. Now, how do we make sure that this never happens again? Right. What's the systems solution? What's the systems fix? What's the, what's the, the tweak we need to make to the checklist? What's the thing we need to do in Trello, whatever that is. And that's what keeps my business super low demand from me. Like I don't, unlike most agency owners, I'm not putting fires out. I mean, it's extremely rare that I'm putting fires out. And when I do, I'm not a happy camper and we make sure it never happens again. Yeah, I think Sam Carpenter has a really great quote on this that goes something like, uh, don't be a firefighter, become a fire preventer. I love Sam Carpenter stuff. Hey guys, we will be right back to the current episode. But first, I want to take a quick second and tell you about another podcast I think you'd really enjoy called About Abroad, which is hosted by my friend Chase Warrington, who is actually a guest on That Remote Life back on episode 122. On About Abroad, Chase interviews expats, digital nomads, and remote work thought leaders from around the world to dive deep into how you can build a life beyond your borders. As an American that has lived in multiple countries and currently calls Spain home, he knows a thing or two about the challenges of creating a life abroad. Chase is also the head of Remotes at Doist, one of the leading remote-first organizations, which you may know as the company behind the popular task manager Todoist, and taps into his connections in the remote world to bring on some really, really great guests. Guys, About Abroad has quickly become one of my favorite podcasts, and if you enjoy that remote life, I think you will really dig About Abroad as well. So if you're interested in checking that out, head over to aboutabroad.com and give it a listen. And with that, let's get back into the current episode. Do you have any other sort of SOP-focused resources that have helped you build out these sort of systems? Because I think this is really critical. Uh, In order for you to run, and this is something we talked about before we hit record, is that a lot of people think that in order to have a good uh, lifestyle as a location-independent entrepreneur, you need to have some sort of product or a blog or whatever it may be, and that's why they kind of tend to push the services out of the way. And I think that's true to an extent, but you can get the same benefits out of a service if you have really strong systems the way that you've described. So what are some of the other resources in this area of creating proper systems and any tips that you can offer to people who are listening? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think one of the best things that we learned how to do was when things need to be corrected to either hop on Zoom and do a screen share and record it and send it to the person and then upload it into the drive so it's there for future reference. Uh, so if there's if there's things where I have to pass something on to a layer below me, right? So I'm, I'm talking to only like four key people in the business. Everything else is like, you know, that's like one layer removed from me. Um, if there's things that I need to tell somebody that there's adjustments we need to make into people where I don't really talk to them every day and they're not on the weekly meeting with me, then we'll, while we're on the meeting, just right there, I'm hitting record, we're screen sharing, we're getting it done. I'm taking that video and getting it into the hands of the right person so that they hear the message straight from me. No telephone game, no, no passing it through my account managers. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they hear it straight from me with, with the context of why. Mm. Right. So that they get like, Hey, this is why we're making this change. It's not just that this came up. It's not just this. It's like, Hey, we want to prevent this from happening again. And 
this is why we're making this change because this client needs X, Y, and Z, and we want to deliver it to them for these few reasons. And that like, this is the big overarching goal of why we're making this change. That also helps people understand that it's not just about this, just the minute changes that we're making. They understand why, so they can understand the spirit of it. So that if, if something comes up, that's not quite in line or, or it's a little bit of a, um, outside curveball, so to speak, and it doesn't match up with our systems quite you know, identically, they can go, okay, the reason we do this is because of this. So I know this is a different situation, but here's why we do this. And that, you know, they, they kind of know to like go with the spirit of the law rather than the letter of the law. It's better to do what the client wants you to do than what the checklist exactly says, because the goal of the checklist is to keep the client happy, mm. you know, just things like that. So, so giving, giving people a loom video or a zoom video that actually walks them through it and telling them the why behind the changes will, will make a huge difference in, in like SOPs. How do you get clients? Because this is one of the really big things that people who are building location-dependent service businesses struggle with is because I think it's very easy for us to lean on location, right? Like, okay, who in my area could be a good client, right? Because you already have some sort of like established relationship with them just because you're from the same area. But how do you get your clients? Like, what is your main way of doing that? Is it the book or is it something else? No, I would say it's podcasting and relationships. And obviously the podcasting helps build the relationships, but at, uh, the stuff that I sell is very relationship driven. There's a high degree of trust and I have a long sales cycle. Um, the, the client we're about to launch in two weeks, I booked her on a podcast three years ago. It was maybe the first podcast she'd ever been booked on. And she hadn't even thought about it. She hadn't, she would have never thought about my service if I hadn't reached out to her. What I did is I found her on LinkedIn. I did a search for, for what I considered my ideal client and I just reached out to her. I, I looked a little bit at her, at her content and I said, yeah, this is my kind of person. And it was just intuitive. I didn't know a lot about her. I just looked at her, at her profile, at the content, at the things she was talking about. And just intuitively, I'm like, yeah, that that's my kind of person. So I just reached out, invited her onto a podcast. We had a great time. We nurtured the relationship. I made a couple of introductions to her over the years to other people that I thought could be helpful. And then all of a sudden she called me up out of the blue uh, or messaged me out of the blue and said like, Hey, let's talk about your service. I'm ready to roll. Um, and there was no discussion of price. There was hardly a discussion about logistics. She barely knew how we worked. She just knew that she was ready to go with us. And so, uh, for freelancers and, and on online business people, it's going to be very similar. Uh, if you don't have the, the commonality of the location, which is such a low level thing to have in common anyway, like you got to really look at who your ideal people are. Who are the people you'd spend time with voluntarily for fun, like those kinds of people and look at what you have in common with them. And I used to do this thing where I would just hop on LinkedIn and I had my list, you know, in sales navigator. And, uh, so I had a save search set up and I would just bring up that save search and I would just scroll through and I wouldn't reach out to everybody. I just looked at it intuitively and went, if I come across two people in this LinkedIn session that I think are like my people. That doesn't mean that they necessarily need to be clients. Maybe they're just people that can send me referrals. I don't know, but they're like my people. I would just, the goal was to find two of them and to reach out to them and say, Hey, looks like we run in similar circles. I love what you're up to. Um, let me know if there's anybody I can introduce you to. I have a big network in such and such space. Um, so maybe I can connect you to someone that'd be helpful. That was basically it. I just did that twice a day to two people a day, five days a week. And that would lead to, you know, about two introductions a week. Uh, sometimes I was putting them on my podcast. Sometimes I was introducing them to others and, uh, that worked, that got me most of my initial clients. And then now I've been able to scale that up to where I have a business development team that's doing that same thing. 
And we just made 10 introductions last week alone. So I'm like leveraging that to do more of the same thing that I already knew worked, but I'm using other people to do it. Mm, I love that. I was um, at a business conference a few weeks ago in Mexico City, and I attended a podcasting workshop. And one of the things that was talked about during that workshop was like why you should start a podcast for your business and how to use it to like grow a client base. And I kind of came from the point of view that I don't know that podcasting is one of these things that like every business needs to have in order to grow a clientele. And I feel like there was a lot of this like you must start a podcast to grow your business client base. From your point of view, working with a lot of clients, helping them do uh, exactly this, like start a podcast. Are podcasts right for everyone? Should all businesses have a podcast? Or is there somebody, is there like a specific type of business that podcasting is really right for? And how would you use a podcast to grow your business if you're if that's the right fit? Okay. So there's definitely not a case where everybody needs a podcast. I think lots of businesses will have podcasts just like they have blogs, but that doesn't mean they should. <laughs> and and obviously hosting a podcast takes more than the personality of a wet blanket. So definitely not everybody should be in, in the podcasting game, um, which is interesting because I come out of the real estate space. Now, my, my clients are the real estate coaches, the influencers, the authors, the speakers. So they're, they're, you know, one level removed from the, just the regular agent. Mm -hmm. And so I get that question a lot in the real estate space. Like, Hey, should I start a a podcast to get buyer and seller clients? I'm like, absolutely not. Cause they're not interested in real estate for six and a half out of the seven years in between when they're moving. They only care about real estate when they want to find an agent and they want to move. So a podcast that has like this long term, you're trying to get people to listen to you every week. There's no purpose in trying to do that if you're trying to get people to listen to something that they don't care about, except for once for a short time out of every seven years. So if you're in a business like that, you should be doing stuff on YouTube that's findable so that when people decide to search for someone like you, they find you. You should be doing SEO stuff. You could be doing a blog that'll draw people to your website. There's a bunch of stuff you could do, but podcast probably isn't one of them. And so, yeah, you absolutely do need to look at, do my do my ideal clients, do they consume content about the thing that I sell before they make a decision. And if they do, then yeah, have a podcast. But if they don't, think very carefully. Gotcha. Hmm. I want to shift um a little bit of talking about more about this micro famous concept and how you personally use podcast appearances to grow your brand. Um I heard you say a quote that, that was actually in your book which is get seen, get noticed, and get known. Can you tell me a little bit more about what that means and how to use that in this context? Yeah, so this assumes that you have what I would call a clear and compelling idea. So you're able to explain to people what you do in just a couple of, maybe even just one powerful sentence. You know, So back in the day when I first started doing uh, podcast agency production and stuff, I would just tell people like, yeah, we, we basically produce a weekly podcast for you. All you do is show up and hit record on Zoom and we grab it from there. We even book all the guests for you. And it was like dropping a hammer. They're like, holy cow. Like, I didn't even know that was pot. Like, and you book the guests too? Like, yeah. And we do it like, it's like, I just built it based on what I built for myself. They're like, all right, we need to have another conversation. Like, it was so easy to do that. So what I found is that if you have a message like that and you start putting that message out there and you focus on putting one single core idea into the market over and over and over again, you get, you go from being just kind of seen where you're like, oh yeah, that's that Matt, that's that Matt guy. Like I've seen him around. I don't really know what he does. I don't really care or whatever. I just, I just see him. Like people start to kind of recognize you. 
then you hit to the next level where people go, hmm, that guy, he's something's going on there. You know, like I've seen, I'm starting to see him around a lot. He's on some of the podcasts that I listen to and I, I hear people talking about him. I think he's in the podcast space and stuff like that. And then I keep doing it. I keep hammering the same message over and over again. And I hit a tipping point. That's what the book, the book talks about is hitting that tipping point of influence where they go, oh, Matt's the micro famous guy, right? He helps make people micro famous. So that's when the market agrees with you and you become known for that one thing. And then everything from that is downhill. It's like, that's where you hit momentum. It's like, you've been pushing this rock up a hill. There's even an illustration by an amazing illustrator in the book about pushing this rock uphill. And then you hit that crest, the top of the mountain and bam, all of a sudden the rock starts rolling down the other side and it get it gets momentum. Well, the momentum is word of mouth, right? People are talking about you. You're, so you're not having to, you're not having to talk about yourself as much. People are, other people are talking about you. Other people are sharing your stuff on social media. That's what it's like to hit that tipping point where you become known for one thing. Um, I, don't, I don't think this example is in the book, but if you think about Tony Robbins, what's, what's Tony Robbins known for? Like there's a lot of things about him, but at the core, why is Tony Robbins famous? It's like, because he came out with this idea in the eighties that personal transformation can happen in an instant. And that was like a bomb going off, right? He was debating psychologists and therapists and, oh, you can't make somebody change. it. Like it takes years of therapy and all this stuff. And he's like, nope, bam, I can do it in an instant and I'll prove it. And he starts proving it on radio and television. The next thing you know, he's speaking to thousands and he's been able to ride off of that same idea. Like Tony Robbins' core idea hasn't changed in 30 years because he found an idea so powerful that once he got known for it, he didn't need to become known for anything else. And that's what he's been known for for 30 years. That's what we're trying to do on a smaller level to be this location independent, amazing online business is you just need to get known for one thing. And if that's the right thing, you might ride that for the rest of your career, or you might change it in two years and that's okay too. But the point is to get known for something so that when you run across people, they know exactly what you do. They know exactly if you're the right person and if they should sign up. And uh, then it's just a matter of when. Yeah, I love what you said about kind of like focusing on the quantity of this because I kind of heard this in terms of like advertising on a podcast or generally advertising in general. I think this applies as well. Is like, you know, if you are a sponsor, if you're a brand and you pay for one podcast episode, right? Like that's not going to be enough. The way that it works is like paying for 30 and almost like saying it over and over and over and over again and kind of like getting that caught up. And I think that applies exactly like you're saying to bring your brand, your message, yeah. your vision, whatever it is to many podcasts. It's like three, four won't necessarily do it, but like getting on like a whole bunch of them and people hearing your vision from a bunch of different points of view, that's yeah. like where it happens. But where do you think, 100%. like how should people think about this in terms of like some of these big podcasts, right? Because there's some podcasts out there that can definitely kind of drop a hammer. So how do you picture this? Like, do you just like go for as many podcasts as you can, or do you try to go for a certain size and like work in some big ones? Like, how do you think about that? Uh, I think you should be like, if you want to use this as a marketing strategy, which is what kind of the micro famous system teaches, like host your own podcast and then get interviewed, but get interviewed consistently, like two to four times a month. And you should always be reaching out to levels, um, you know, podcasts at three different levels, the big, the big ones that can make a huge difference, the medium level ones, uh, and then the small ones that are like up and comers and that are hosted by people that you want to know. And, you know, they may have small audiences, but they're probably more engaged because they're smaller and more focused and that's okay. So you should always be reaching out to those three different levels because here's the bottom line. 
You don't know what big podcast is going to hit. And when you show up to that big podcast, if you haven't done 50 or 100 of them, you're going to be so nervous, you might blow it. Mm. Right. So the bottom line is like once you get 50 or 100 under your belt, it's a lot easier and you're going great. Um, yeah, it's a big name. Like you might be nervous, but you wouldn't be anywhere near as nervous as, as, as if you had showed up out of the blue and you got entrepreneur on fire or something like that right out of the gate. And it's your first couple of podcasts. Um, and by the way, like uh, I've got a client that can trace back a hundred, a uh, hundred grand in revenue to just a couple of podcast episodes. Well, actually, can trace one set of, of six figures back to one appearance on Pat Flynn's podcast, Smart Passive Income. Uh, that same year, she was also on Entrepreneur on Fire. It did zero. Like you just never know. You never know what's going to hit. So basically, go after them all because you need the experience anyway. Gotcha. Um, can you talk a little bit about like what you look for at a minimum from a podcast before you appear on it? Like, do you have some sort of like it should have this many reviews or this many podcast episodes? Like, what is kind of like your minimum viable podcast for interviews? Yeah, you know, it depends on what stage you're at. If you're really in the upcoming stage, I wouldn't worry about it too much. Maybe set the bar pretty low at 10 to 15 reviews on the podcast. You just never know. They could have a solid audience and an email list of two or 3,000 people and a few hundred downloads per episode and not look super big from the outside. They could also be uh, relatively big names and have a big email list and their their podcast might just be relatively new. So it's it's just it's really hard to tell from the outside what you're going to get when you go on a podcast, which is why most people's default answer is yes. Like if you invite them onto a podcast, their their default answer is yes, unless they see a compelling reason not to. So unless I see something like you've been around for a long time and have no reviews or something like that, uh, that's when I'll maybe think twice. Otherwise, if my default is yes. And what can people who are appearing on podcasts, because I love this idea of using other people's podcasts, kind of like get your messaging out there. But what like do you recommend for people to do in order to like build an audience of that? Like how can they attract those people to either follow their podcast, follow them on social media, you know, become email subscribers, like buyers eventually down the road? Like what are some things they can do as guests to promote that increase the chances of that happening? So two things, and and Tim Ferriss just had an episode where we talked about how his podcast grew, and interestingly enough, he said the same thing. So I know I'm on solid ground here. The first thing you want to do is pick the most important thing that you're going to promote when you're a guest. So if you feel like email subscribers are the most valuable, then send people to a way to get on your email list, and don't worry about if they go and listen to your podcast. If you want podcast listeners, then you got to talk about your podcast. Like Tim Ferriss is very clear about that. If you're just a guest on podcast, but you don't talk about the podcast specifically, it's like you'll have a very low conversion rate. You'll, you'll convert very few of those people into podcast listeners. Now, overall, I think an email subscriber is more valuable than just a podcast listener who is in, in my email list. So I tend to send people to my email list even though I have a podcast. That's personal preference. The second thing is once you pick out what you're going to promote, you want to seed some mentions of that throughout. So I've mentioned like just, and this is part of just because it's ingrained in the way I talk now. So it wasn't really intentional, but you notice like in our conversation, I've mentioned the book a couple of times. You've mentioned the book, which is very kind. Um, and then I've mentioned the podcast at least once, if not twice. So people know I have a book, I have a podcast and we'll talk about where they can go, but I've mentioned it a couple of times. It's not going to come as a surprise a half hour later when you ask me what people should do, then I'm going to tell them, Hey, go listen to my podcast or go check out the book. Um, 
yes, it's because I've seeded it in advance. So those are the two things. Pick what you're going to promote, what's the most important, and then make sure you, that you sprinkle little seeds of that into the conversation. Yeah, I think this goes back to what you were saying about like, like you need to do a whole bunch of interviews because the first time that you start doing interviews, like this might kind of like come out a bit weird. Like it might seem a bit forced when you like drip those things in there. But the more interviews that you do and the more practice that you get, the easier and more natural it becomes for you to do that in the middle of the interview. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure you've noticed that just being a guest and, and being a host, everything just gets easier with time and things that were uncomfortable at first, all of a sudden you realize, oh, I did that without even thinking about it. Yeah. And, that, and that's exactly the way it should be because then it is genuinely casual and it's in the flow of the conversation. And that's exactly how you want it to be. So speaking of the book, like who is it right for? Like who is somebody who is in a position where this book, this concept of using uh, podcasts to grow some sort of brand, like who is this right for and who should kind of like leave it to the side and focus on other stuff? Mm. Okay. So it's really great if you have a skill set, you have expertise to share, you have a really specific type of client that you want to help and that you can solve a really big problem for them, uh, then this book is absolutely right for you. So when I say expert, in my world, sometimes that means coach, consultant, speaker, author type, but an expert can also be just somebody who is an expert at uh, SEO or web design or something like that, right? You can, but the, the prerequisite to all this stuff is if you're going to start a podcast and you follow the model that's in the book is it's going to be a mix of interviews, a mix of conversations with successful clients, along with solo episodes where you're giving your perspective and you're talking about your expertise. So you got to have some expertise to share. You got to kind of know what problem that you want to solve. So I would say if you're not quite sure about those things, or if you know you have skills, but you're like, mm, I don't know if I'm an expert quite yet, that's okay. Um, it Maybe it's not the right time to launch a podcast, or maybe it's time to launch a podcast where the goal is to learn and not to promote. And that's not really something that I talk about in the book, but it is what it was my journey. Um, I didn't start the podcast, the, you know, Real Estate Uncensored, I knew that I would, eventually I was going to sell something, but I also just did it because these are the conversations that I wanted to have. And I knew I would learn a lot and I would build a network. It's totally okay to go into podcasting and not know exactly what you're going to do and just start talking to smart people and figure it out. That's perfectly okay. And the book will help those folks too. And I know that you focus mostly, like like you mentioned, on coaches, you know, kind of like service focused people. But if somebody's listening to this who's maybe selling a software, or has a blog or something like that? Like, is it, this book, is this concept something that can help them as well or not so much? Uh, it is just the language of the book. Some of it won't resonate with you and some of the strategy stuff that I talk about. Uh, but what's interesting is I am heavily influenced by people like Christopher Lockett, who wrote Play Bigger, which was intended for Silicon Valley and venture-backed startups. Well, it's interesting how many of the principles carry over from other parts uh, and other niches. So absolutely, the principles in the book will apply, especially if, and this is a big if, right? If your goal is to build a lifestyle business, because everything that I talk about is with that goal in mind. I'm not interested in building a unicorn. I'm not interested in building something that that I end up with an office of 50 people. Uh, I'm not interested in any of that stuff. So I will say that, like you have to want, you have to have some expertise or on your way to building it. And you do have to want a lifestyle business where the priority is your quality of life and working with the right clients, not growing the biggest possible business with the most revenue and the maximum number of clients so that you can sell it or get acquired or something like that. Cause that's the book is really just not about that. It's not about growth hacking. It's not about any of that. 
the the tactical stuff of of marketing. It's about how do you use something like podcasting and that ecosystem and to broadcast a message that like a homing beacon will attract only the right people because those are the people that you want and you don't care and you actively are okay with rejecting everyone else. Like you have to be okay with you know, like, hey, my my 10,000 people. Um, like I, I know multiple people in this little tiny corner of the real estate space, the residential real estate space that all run high six or seven figure like training coaching businesses where the maximum size of that audience of, of people that could buy their product in any year is 15,000 people. And we're talking multiple six and seven figure companies in that same space, all competing for the same clients. Two of them are my clients and they both get 10,000 downloads a month on their podcast in a space of only 15,000 people, right? So like you don't need as many people as you think. Like that to me, that's the one of the biggest ideas of Microfamous is you just don't need the Gary V millions of eyeballs on your content. All you need is the right people. And if you think about it in terms of if I just had 10,000 people that paid attention to my stuff, who are the right people? Uh, that solves a lot of problems. Yeah, I think that's kind of like the beauty of the internet, right? Is that before the internet, you couldn't be as niche as you can now because like physically you might not have as many people who are interested in whatever that small topic is around you. But the internet connects everyone globally and just at that scale, it's very possible that if you have some sort of highly valued service, like your clients mentioned, like the client that you mentioned, like you don't need a ton of people. Like if it's a highly valued and you have 10,000 of them, that's great. Like you can, you can run an incredible business off of that. And I think if you are somebody who is listening to this and wondering like, well, do I want to be micro famous? Do I want to grow bigger? Like I want to have a huge, you know, following really the question is why and make sure that you have a reason for that. Like one of the things that Gary Vee has done very intelligently, I think is he uses that attention and then leverages off into like building other brands and selling it. Right. So he did this with like empathy wines where he said like, okay, I'm going to build this brand. I'm going to direct all this attention at it and then flip it. If that's not something that you want to do, then you can probably have an incredible lifestyle business like you've mentioned with a far smaller audience, which is a lot more attainable. So uh, I really, really love that. But Matt, I want to I want to be respectful of your time. So I know that you've mentioned the book before. Let people know where can they find the book? Uh, where can they find you online? And where can they learn more about uh, your services if they're interested in starting a podcast? Uh, it's all at getmicrofamous.com. That's the best place because you can get on the email list where we actually exchange emails. So you have my actual real email uh, and um, we'll get you a copy of like a digital copy of the book. Uh, you'll get the latest podcast episodes and there's also a video there about the agency so you can learn a little bit more about that. So the website's the best place to go. Uh, if you're just a book reader and you love books, go to Amazon. The physical copy is there and uh, and make sure to check out the Microfamous podcast because that's where we really delve into this stuff. Those are it's, it's my show where I just go for 15 minutes at a time and dig into one idea or concept or strategy or something like that. And we talk a lot about this world of, you know, digital introverts, essentially. So people that, that they may be extroverted in real life or introverts in real life, whatever. But when it comes to social media, not super interested. Uh, that's a lot of my clients and a lot of the people that are drawn to me. So if you're that same way and you're looking like how, how in the world do I build the business that I want and be location independent and get the lifestyle, the income and all this stuff without having to spend all my time hanging out on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn, like that, that's the kind of stuff that we talk about on the podcast. Cause that's the, the one problem, the one challenge that I'm like obsessed with. Perfect. I love it. And the book, if I, if I, I've heard correctly is like free plus shipping, right? Is that something that you still offer? 
Now we pulled that back. That was originally just part of the launch process, uh, but the digital copy is free. So if you just go to the website and get in the mailing list, you, like the first email that you get has the free PDF. Oh, perfect. Awesome. Well, Matt, I want to say thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. This has been uh, super, super fun for me. And uh, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing your knowledge with us. Yeah, it was an honor. I appreciate it.